dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Hello and welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic. I am one of your co-hosts, Jamar Tisby. Tyler Burns is out. He had something come up, but we are blessed. My goodness, blessed to have <laughs> Sheila Wise Rowe with us. She is the author of this book, Healing Racial Trauma, The Road to Resilience. Y'all have heard me talk a ton about the importance of therapy, the importance of understanding our inner selves and paying attention to our mental health. Uh, that's how I got into running of all things. And if you see how short my legs are and how slow I am, it don't make no sense. But it is, it is one of those things that I do for the sake of uh, not just my physical health, but my mental health as well. And so I'm so excited to talk to uh, author, therapist, globe trotter, wife, mother, all of these things, and, and hear about um, healing racial trauma, particularly as it uh, pertains to the black community and black Christian community. So welcome to Pass the Mic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm excited to be here. Tell us where you're where you're tuning in from, since we're all virtual. So right now. yeah, so I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, okay, very good. Yeah. So I'm all right. All right. Gorgeous day. And okay, I was going to say, I hope the here. weather's treating y'all okay. It is okay. It's okay today. Uh, <laughs> and I just want to give a heads up to our listeners and viewers. I too am on the road. We are on the road with my family to our in laws, and so I'm actually in a hotel lobby in. I don't even have a room here. So uh, I hope they don't kick me out or, you know, uh, there's nobody around, but they may ask me to put on a mask, uh, whatever it might be. So I just want to give folks a heads up. If the audio is not the typical quality and the background is like, where are you at? That's my story. But because this was so important that we get to talk to you. So thank you. We wanted to make it happen. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background. Introduce yourself to folks who may yeah. not know. Um, so I, I actually was born in Boston, raised here, uh, married here, and practiced as a therapist, as a social worker. I've worked in many settings, secular settings, Christian settings, um, and also have done spiritual direction um, with folks, a lot of group work, couples work. We moved to South Africa, Johannesburg, in, um, in 2005, and really felt the Lord's call was South Africa has, was getting close to 10 years or just mm. around 10 years of post-apartheid. And we had formed relationships about five years before that. And so it was really an opportunity to continue that ministry around reconciliation and around healing. And I mm. was working with women, uh, homeless and abused women and wow. their children and um, did a lot of work, a residential uh, home for them and transitional got funding for some to go to college. And um, it was, it was an incredible time. It was a difficult time at the same sure. and the same way. And so many ways that South Africa kind of mimics the process of the U S in terms of coming out of, you know, the whole civil rights era coming out of apartheid. And what we see in the country was uh, that the majority was still not fully in power. And, um, yes. and okay. so, yeah, we so got, that was, we got to park it there for a second. Yeah, yeah. I had the opportunity to go to South Africa with a small group of folks back in uh, November 2019, right. and I thought I knew something about race and racial dynamics. And then I got to South Africa. Can you yeah. tell us some yeah. of the differences, some of the more complexities yeah. between there and and here as far as our racial story? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a flipping. Racially, the majority is black. Um, and then you have, I would say the second racial group would be um, those who came from India and um, came to work there. Uh, and then the smallest minority actually is the white population. And there are ways in which uh, the white population came in and very slowly between the white Afrikaners and the white English um, they were, they were, they actually had a war between the two of them and over the country, the land, the resources. And, um, at the end of the day, the Afrikaner, uh, population 
took control of the government and then started, they were instituting these apartheid laws, which are very much like the segregation laws around Jim Crow and what we saw with the separate fountains, all those things that we saw in the South, like you you were seeing that in, in South Africa. And we're not talking about the 1960s. <laughs> you know, um, the first election was in 1994. That's insane. 1994. Very young. Yes. Yeah, uh, very, very young. Very, very young. And, um, and unfortunately, a lot of the power base in terms of finances and money and even who gets to live where and all that, it's still very much white controlled, to be honest. And um, so in many ways, the whole Rainbow Nation piece is not quite an accurate reflection. Um, yeah, it's, so it's a miracle important. story, but it's not a complete miracle story. That's right. We like to, when we remember our racial past, all right, so, so, so this is the flip side of trauma. The, the, yes. the national memory tends to be that rosy picture, Absolutely. you know, this, this, this very simplistic linear narrative of triumph over prejudice and mm-hmm. regressive forces, but the reality is much different. And I cannot stress enough to folks how different it is when you have a black majority, but still yeah. a white minority in power of you know, all of the major areas from economics to, 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 uh, uh, culture in some aspects and, 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 uh, money and all of that. So I'm, I'm glad you have that comparative. Um, yeah. yeah. I want to say too, just, I feel like the, the comparison also is that in South Africa, like we're seeing now um, this resurgence in terms of South African languages mm, and, okay. and dress and, um, so they're they're grappling with that the way that we did um, and starting to reclaim who they are um, and and their different different ethnic groups and and so that's that's wonderful and exciting to see um, and and just like here you have like this population white and English Afrikaner who are saying you know what. Uh, this is a majority black nation and we need to lay down our privilege. Um, but that's a smaller number. And so it's, it, it's similar to what we're dealing with and have dealt with. Right, right, right. So that was, that was a little of a tangent, but I was so excited to, yeah. to see you had that connection because there's so much to unpack there. Um, yeah. But it all sort of ties together, right, around yeah. the idea of trauma and, and racial Absolutely. trauma in particular. Yeah. So, you know, before we dive in deeper, I think we use this word trauma a lot. But yeah. again, is a word like racism is seldom defined in yeah. usage. And so can you talk about what trauma is in general? Like, is it any yeah. sort of event that, that was like made an impression on us or there's something distinct that makes something traumatic? Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's often this conversation about big T traumas and little T traumas. Okay. And so big T traumas can be something really, you know, big as catastrophic, can be life altering, um, pretty dramatic. And then there are these smaller traumas that could happen. And if we just want to use a, like a physical example, like, uh, maybe you broke your arm. That's, a, that's a, that's traumatic. Um, is it, the same as having open heart surgery? No, but it's it's painful. Um, and the reality, though, is that when you look at racial trauma, racial trauma can be big T trauma and small T trauma. And what they've shown is that the small T trauma and racial trauma, whether it's being pulled over by police officers or tailed in the mall um, or not getting a promotion, like those little small things compounded over and over and over again, actually do more damage than a big T trauma, like something huge and catastrophic. Wow. And, um, and so we can then begin to understand, like when, when some of the, like, whether it's George Floyd, whether it's Ahmaud Arbery, like how many times were they pulled over? How many times were they harassed? You know? And so can we talk about that for a second? Yes. Yeah. Cause I'm trying to convey the feeling uh, as a black person, particularly as a black male, when you see a any cop car and b those red and blue flashing lights, there was yeah. a season um, in in my uh, early to mid twenties where I got pulled over, I think three to four times in the period of like three months. 
Yep. And it got to the point, and it's still to the point yeah. where anytime I see a police officer, my heart starts yeah. pounding. Yeah. And if I get pulled over, oh my goodness, it's 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 a total um, adrenaline kind of uh, uh, takeover, mm-hmm. and and it's extremely nerve. What is that? I yeah. mean, I don't yeah. know what's going on physiologically, but I know I'm not the only person like that. No. And and no. the way I've said it is like the terror of a quote unquote routine traffic stop. Right? They're they're never routine when you no. when race yeah. is involved. Yeah. Um, the terror functions the same way that the terror of lynching and and yeah. physical black brutality did. I'm not saying that it's the equivalent, yeah. but the terror is there. Yeah, and it's it, because those things are it's triggering because you know we've we've seen the videos and and we know family members who've been pulled over and who have been harassed and then I write about a brother who went to jail. It's like you know mistaken identity. But so we we have those stories and we've heard those stories. And so when something like that happens, and that's what I think that um, that some white people just don't get, <laughs> you know, they just think, well, so what's the big deal? You know, you were pulled over and um, it doesn't matter. I, I shared this story of a conference that I was attending and I had hopped into an Uber with this white woman and we were getting it. We were going to get a ride to the conference together and. I, um, the driver was black and this is the Midwest. And I, you know, I'm like, okay, this is great. We're driving all of a sudden the lights, the flashing lights, we get pulled over. And I'm, and he's like, I hear the sigh of the man. And then I, uh, the police officer comes, asks for his license, takes a long time to process this. The white woman is there and she's just like, kind of oblivious to this. And then the after a long protracted time, the police officer comes back, hands him back his 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 um, license and says, you know, we'll get your license plate, plate fixed or whatever. And then so she said, basically, well, that's you know, so great that you didn't get a ticket. And we were at her. She was at a different hotel. She gets out. Immediately after she gets out, the, the driver says to me, I'm tired of this crap. And it was yes. like two different worlds, two literally two different worlds. He said the amount of times that our community gets harassed, it's it's ridiculous. This is yeah. I don't I can't even count how Fix many your times. license plate. Come on, I've been I've been pulled over, right? And there's yep. been one incident after the other, and and I thought, wow, this is and this is before I wrote the book. I was going to a writers conference, and I had the um, I had a proposal to to do the book, and I felt like really was the Lord saying, and this is the example. There literally are two different worlds that yeah. exist where yeah. one is totally clueless and even denies the reality of the other. And, um, and yet as a black person, we're walking around being triggered and traumatized and in pain um, because our bodies hold that stress. Mm. And so mm. something else happens, like you get pulled over again. It's just tapping into that, that stress loop that has not been dealt with from going way back. And, and so that's why when you have that happen to you and you're, you're feeling that adrenaline rush and you're thinking, well, where is that coming from? It, it's old. Hey folks, Jamar Tisby, co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast, and I have a quick request for you. If you have appreciated the podcast, would you consider becoming a patron of the podcast? Head over to patreon.com slash pass the mic. That's M-I-C, patreon.com slash pass the mic. And you can support us per episode at $1 all the way up to $10. You get special access, special privileges for being a patron of the podcast. But most importantly, if you have appreciated the work of me and Tyler and Bo, uh, lo these many years since 2013, we would really appreciate it if you lent us your financial support so that we can keep doing this and even get better at what we're doing and increase our offerings. So go to patreon.com slash pass the mic and become a supporter of the podcast. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. 
We want to be difference makers, but maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code 1-2022. That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. There's a lot of history there. Oh yeah. So, so 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 trauma is just is that just any sort of like impactful event, or does it have to be negative, or does there has to be connected to a physiological response? Um, well, if it's not dealt with, if we don't deal with the trauma immediately, then our bodies do hold it in. Okay. And, and our minds, like we have memories. Yes. It hold, the, the tension and the stress is not released from our bodies. You talked about running. That's one way of getting it out of your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and a lot of what we see in the black community with our health issues, heart disease, diabetes, um, you know, even attention deficit um, disorder, all those things are, you can trace it back. Yeah. You're, you're saying we, we hold it into our bodies, hold it in our bodies. And uh, if we don't deal with those instances, it's, it's going to come back up every time we're triggered by exactly. that kind of a thing. Yes, yes. So um, there's so much to talk about. I want to actually start with the cover of the book yeah. um, and the title, really, because as an author, I know so much goes into yeah. getting the title. I think the healing racial trauma is pretty straightforward. I'm curious about the subtitle, The yeah. Road to Resilience. Yeah. Uh, how yeah. did you land on that as sort of a, a unifying phrase for what you wanted to convey? Um, you know what? I I think the issue was one of we are going to deal with racial racism and mm-hmm. we're going to have to figure out, like, well, what are the ways in which we we can manage heal through racial trauma um, so that we are more resilient? Racism isn't going away anytime soon. We want it to go away. Um, and so in the in the meanwhile, what are the tools, what are the things that we can start to implement that can help to build and strengthen us and build build that kind of resilience? Um, and it's a it's a hard road because it's relentless um, and it comes when we least expect it. You know, we we really can be minding our own business and then suddenly it rears its head. You know, whether it's at work, it doesn't have to be a police car. It can be anywhere, the supermarket, our landlord, the mortgage company you know, the house that we want to buy, <laughs> um, all of those things. And, and so we have to, we, we need to figure out like, so, you know, the, the thing with the book was that I didn't want the book to be about um, necessarily like, okay, white people, this is what you need to do. It was like, we need to heal. <laughs> we need to heal. We, we need to heal. And we need to figure out how to navigate through this while we fight. Um, for for justice, for equity, we continue that fight, but we've got to figure out how to heal. Um, because when we came back in 2016, in the middle of you know the election, that hot mess, um, and it was really surprising. And you're talking about me. I was you know I went through busing, you know early busing in the mid 60s. Yeah, and, okay. And enforced busing, uh, mandated busing in Boston. Right. So this is not. For me to be like, oh my gosh, what the heck? <laughs> it has to really be bad. It, yes. it really has to be bad. Yeah. And it just felt like people just did whatever, said whatever they felt like. They would give them permission just to act out. And um and, and people were in pain. And I was yes. in pain. Yeah. And so I'm watching this stuff. I you know, I have a black husband, I've got black children, <laughs> I'm a black woman, and 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 so for me, being in this this environment and not that racism had disappeared 
So I don't want to, at no point was I under the delusion that America was post-racial, mm-hmm. even while we were 10 years away in South Africa. However, mm-hmm. it just, it really felt like, particularly in the North, there can be this kind of veneer of civility. Yes. Yes. It was like gone. <laughs> it's gone everywhere. <laughs> there was no civility anywhere. People were um, saying the quiet parts out loud. They were shouting. They were, they were, they were shouting, their yes. Themselves. Oh, yeah, they really are. were. They, yes. And they are. Yes. And yeah. So, so that was I really like that, 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 that idea of resilience, because like, it's going to happen. You know, yeah. I think, I think actually we're, we're more unprepared if we walk around thinking that, you know, if we pull the right levers, racism's going to disappear and we'll be fine. I think we'll be caught off guard when it does happen, which it will continue to do. One of the things I always say is racism never goes away. It adapts. And so it might look different in, you know, 2021 as we record this than it did in, you know, Absolutely. 1921, but it's still there. And what you're talking about is, is how can we be resilient in the face of it? That that's yeah. so powerful. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, th- I, you know, some people would say that's being pessimistic. I said, that's realistic. You know, let's, yeah. Yeah. we live in the real world until Jesus comes back. We're always going to be dealing with brokenness and fallenness. Yeah. So yeah. I appreciate that. Um, what are, so, so obviously you thought there was a need to write a whole book about yeah. this. Mm-hmm. What are, what are, do you think are, are some of the obstacles, particularly for black folks in dealing with our racial trauma such that we needed a book on it? And, mm-hmm. you know, what are the challenges that, 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 that we need to sort of overcome even to address this and build up that resilience? Yeah. I think the, the major one is that we carry a lot of stigma around mental, mental health and um, mental illness, and we, we don't want to talk about stuff. Um, and, and I understand that. I get that because that's how we were raised. You know, it was generally like whatever happens in this house stays in this house, you know, um, and, and whatever you're struggling with or feeling, you just need to bottle it up and keep it moving. And partly because we had to do that um, in order to survive. And and so we've got to, to look at that first and foremost. Like, how have we bought into that notion that somehow if I just pack it in and deny it and pretend that it's not there, um, and it's not even a conscious effort, but that is affecting me and I need to stop and to look at that. It's affecting me, uh, my children, it's going to affect the next generation. And what do I need to do? What help do I need to do to begin to heal? Um, and so we've, we've got to first address that piece. Um, I, I feel like, what do I want to say? <laughs> I feel like there are ways in which we actually took care of each other better <laughs> a while back, Hmm. we were a lot more connected um, in terms of a community, in terms of people. It wasn't just like, you know, my family and my mother and whatever. It was my aunties. It was the sister who lived a couple of doors down. You know, it was my grandparents. It was like people were engaged with each other and supportive in ways. And I don't, so I'm, I feel like there can be, there's a lot of push around therapy and there should be. And as a therapist, yes, but we had these things, these, there's no way my parents, your parents, any, any of us would have survived if something wasn't working. And the something was actually the black church because that was the there place we go. Where, yeah. where we were able to go and just know that, you know, what our dignity would be intact. You know, we would have all sorts of crap out there. You know, couldn't drink out of this faucet, couldn't go into that restaurant, whatever. But we know that was like a that was a safe harbor. It was a welcome place, and we could go and we could just testify, wail, get prayer, um, just be what we needed to be, and have people come and surround us and support yeah. us. And so I, I'm, I feel like if there are ways in which we can begin to to recapture some of that. Um, you know, and I'm not trying to be nostalgic. I know this is, you know, 2021 and it's going to look a whole lot different and I'm seeing some of it online. It's a different thing, but it's, I see it happening. I see it. Like people are connecting. They, they're watching yeah. past Mike and they're like, okay, you know, so they're, they're feeling like, okay, I'm connected to somebody. I'm not, you know, I'm, this person's out here in Iowa. There's like nobody, you know, but they can tune in, you know, um, and so we've got to figure out 
one, the stigma. Secondly, how do we regain connection with one another to support one another in our, our mental health? Um, and also to support each other and strengthen each other so we can strategize to, to go and, and confront the racism that we see in, um, in community, in our communities in the nation as a whole and in the church. I think what you're raising is such an important point because, uh, I agree with you. I mean, we wouldn't have lasted this long if we didn't have some sort of mechanisms within our community to build that resilience, right? Yeah. And and yeah. I do think the black church has been a huge part of that. And and as you're saying it, it makes me think of, you know, not everything has to be therapy to be therapeutic. Exactly. You know, not, exactly. not everything has to be a formal, you know, therapy session with yeah. a trained professional yep. to be therapeutic in the sense Absolutely. of helping to build us resilience almost in the same way that not everything you don't always have to go to church to be the church Absolutely. you know what i'm saying like yes. it's not just an occasion or a place exactly. it's a, it's a way of being and, and, it, and it can can yep. look a lot of different ways yeah. so i appreciate that now the flip side if we yes. get really real yeah i when we talk about obstacles to dealing with mental health in 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 a particularly professional setting so like going mm-hmm. to I've actually seen some some Christian leaders saying, oh, you don't need all that, you know, just the Bible and prayer or, you know, uh, uh, you, you're not you don't have enough faith, those kinds of things. So is there a way in which sometimes uh, black religious spaces can can even be an obstacle to, to building that resilience? Yeah, they can be. And I think that. You know, I think that part of that is having a better understanding of, well, what does it mean when scripture talks about, um, you know, our our minds being renewed? You know, what does it mean about how to help people to take every thought captive and make it subject to Christ? Like, what does it mean to actually be a presence with people as we, we look at Jesus and his example of his interactions with various people and how there was a there was a ministry of presence, but also him like revealing the truth and and yet in in a very therapeutic way if you think about how he engaged people where you know he he wasn't like you know slapping people around metaphorically um or shaming them to their face like he would bring things up that were pretty revealing and yet it was done in a manner in which people felt his love and his care and i think that that's the piece where the black church and church period um, can do a better job at of yes, it's about the Lord, but it's also about us and and how are we allowing that love to flow through us um, with whoever it is that's sitting in that pew or not in the pew. They're in the community. How do we, how do we love them with Christ's love, which is unconditional. It wasn't, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to talk to this. Some of the things that Jesus did, you think of scandalous. Absolutely. Were scandalous. Yes, they were. Like, why are you talking to that woman? Uh Why are you talking to those kids? (laughs) You know, why are you talking to that tax collector? Why are you talking to that prostitute? You know? And you mentioned, you know, Jesus would bring things up, like not to shame people, but it reminds me, what is the role of truth telling in healing trauma? Yeah. Yeah. It's it really is central to it because a lot of times we get to this place where we because we're in, we're denying it because you know whatever it's like I got to keep this job um, whatever the motivation is and sometimes we're not even aware of our motivation but we feel that we can't tell the whole story and and I think about Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood and him like stopping everything like no where is she and and she. She told her whole story. And that's a part of the, that's part of healing is really getting in touch with what really happened. But that does mean stopping long enough to, to actually get quiet enough. And whether it's with someone else or whether it's in prayer, but to really look at what has happened um, and how has it affected, um, affected us. That, that is so important. So telling that whole story is it's so important. My heart is heavy right now because you are saying something I completely resonate with, which is sort of 
being still enough to to let the truth of your experience rise up to the yeah. surface. Sometimes it's been intentionally repressed by us. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's been subconsciously repressed by us. But my heart is heavy because I remember working with um, students when I was a teacher and a principal, a mm -hmm. uh, very materially poor area. And, and so many of our students and their families are stuck in survival mode, yes. yeah. which you cannot yeah. rest. You're always right. on. You're always on the lookout for danger and yeah. threats. And how am I yeah. going to pay the next bill, get so-and-so out of incarceration, mm -hmm. uh, you know, deal with sick family members or mentally ill family members? My heart is heavy because I'm like, what chance do so many of our people have when every day is a struggle just to survive and you're 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 you've got compounding trauma trauma yeah. on top of trauma on top with never a chance to rest and take a break like yeah. is there anything folks in that situation or maybe folks who are near to that situation and no other people can do yeah i think that a lot of times we can because it feels like this is such a heavy bird like life is such a heavy burden that we then try to figure out, well, where am I going to find rest? Am I going to find rest because I can, whatever, you know, watch binge on some show or, you know, we look for other ways to try to medicate, to try to rest, to try to. And, and so the thing is, where are the places where we need help? to try to figure out like how not to go to those things, which to be honest, give a level of respite. It's not permanent, but what are some alternatives that we can present as the body of, of Christ, uh, whether it's uh, in the church or even outside the church, even with our neighbor, like how can we, you know, whether, you know, you talk about again, running it's, you know, I know of folk who've just, you know, in the right in the hood, like we're going to do, we're having a running group and bunch, bunch of sisters. And we're going to go run through like the local park. And we're going to, we're going to use that as a time for quiet, for exercise and getting rid of that stress from our bodies, but also to talk while we're jogging or, or just walking through. And so it's looking for those creative ways outside of, um, you know, this whole, like everything grinds to a halt and I can just rest because we feel like we can't do that. Right. Cause I'm like, you know, you can't have a personal retreat every time work gets stressful or have a spa day. You know, that's not in yeah. everybody's, uh, right. you know, zone of, of, of capability given, you know, different factors. But I love the way, you know, there's little seams in life. And I think it requires maybe e even just beginning with a consciousness that I do occasionally need to get still you know so yes. yeah all the kids go play outside for 30 minutes yes. I, don't, I just need to be need the house to be quiet and i need to get back in touch with me um another one is worship is just uh, just allowing yes. yourself to just yes. rest in worship just to lay down and let the let the music wash over you and just getting quiet and still and just listen you know Ooh, i'm saying getting way too personal on this one but like <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I don't emote typically through tears. This mm. is not, this is not that cathartic for me usually. But the one time I will mm. is a song. You put on yeah. Yeah. some of these, you know, Fred Hammond in particular. Mm. There's mm. some songs yeah. that just move yeah. me. And, yeah. and then yeah. I'll listen to it on repeat and just, and I wonder if that's part of why um, for black people and, and other people of color, our worship is so physical. Yes. You know, absolutely. as a way of kind of getting out some of the physiological effects of absolutely. that trauma that we're dealing absolutely. with and carrying. And I, huh. I absolutely agree. I And I make a note of that in the book, like that. I really believe that even the yeah. you know, dancing in the spirit and, you know, da, 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 like that, <laughs> a release. Yes, the yes. Holy Spirit is present, but it's a release. It's a way to get that out. And I think that's contributed to our being able to to survive in the midst of this. So I think it's important for people to know that you don't come at this topic from an abstract or purely clinical yeah. person. You've lived oh, yeah. through this. And, and to the extent that you're comfortable, can you share some of, you know, your story about enduring this kind of trauma? Yeah. Um, I So I grew up a young child. It was in the early 60s. 
Um, I was a part of a project called the Ex Operation Exodus program. It was a um, actually a voluntary busing program in Boston. Um, Boston was the education in the black community was horrific. And um, and so we found an ordinance that said you could go to any school in the city. And Boston's pretty is broken up into many different neighborhoods. Um, and uh, and so they, they got funding, got buses. And we I was bused to an all white school. And it was my first experience being in an all white environment. And um, it was that was totally traumatic for me. Um, and because I really didn't feel that. Um, it, you know, it being totally foreign and there were ways in which I wasn't really welcomed and many experiences of being humiliated publicly in front of the class and accused of cheating and all of those things that just really wore me down um, to the point that I really, uh, I was shy anyways, but just really questioned my intellect, questioned my abilities. Um, I also want to say that it wasn't even just the school part. It was around my family as well. My parents both came from Virginia up to Boston um, and settled, making a new life for themselves. And they just repeatedly were faced with a number of incidents where there, there was just sabotage. Like my father and uh, uncle and cousin opened up a furniture store and um, the basically the white furniture owners um, in a little, probably like five minutes away or 10 minutes away, they still were in the black community selling furniture to black folk, um, got wind of that they were getting loans for um, black folk to buy furniture from this black owned store. And then, so they went directly to the bank and said, do not give out loans. And mm. my, my father and uncles, and they were like, this is, it's weird that suddenly nobody's getting a loan. And so they did a little test and had one of my uncles went over and um, to the white store and promptly signed up and was given something. Whereas when he did that with my father, no, nothing. Couldn't get it. Couldn't get a loan. Um, and so they ended up having to shut down. And so my father dealt with that. He dealt with the fact that his parents um, and youngest brother died in the TB um, outbreak in Virginia um, because there were no hospital beds for uh, black folk or colored people at the time. And so he was orphaned very early on. And so my father carried a lot of that with him. And it really affected um, just how he navigated through life, how he parented. Um, and eventually he did leave and our, my parents separated and divorced. Um, but there's there are many instances, including I recount a there was an uprising, a, a riot that happened, and he was in the thick of it. Um, and so carrying all, all of that and into my adulthood and going into college and then feeling like, do I really belong? Feeling like I'm an imposter. Like, they'll discover that I'm really not whatever. I'm not smart enough. I don't really belong here. And, and really battling with that to the point that freshman year, I almost flunked out because I just could not get it. Like yeah. I'm in this environment, it's mostly white and I'm a fish out of water. And so all, all of my life until I stopped long enough and went into therapy and started to unpack everything from my father and his racial trauma and my racial trauma, um, did I start to really feel like, okay, I can be like, I can fully inhabit who I am, but it took work and it took years. Did you know around college or, or, or that stage that you wanted to, to go into being a therapist or how did that come about? I actually went in to college wanting to be a medical doctor. And, um, and then, you know, they make it really, really difficult by your second semester. Like we're going to, they're going to weed out everybody. Yeah. And because I had all that backdrop of like confusion and do I belong here or whatever, I ended up not doing that. And so then I just, I, pursued psychology and sociology um, and then realized like I, over time, it really felt like, okay, this is another form of healing. Um, and, and then I began to have doing internships in different places. And that's how I, I started counseling. 
so glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> One more piece of your story. Has there been any, have you always been in like uh, predominantly black Christian settings or has there been any racial trauma in your story uh, around Christianity and, and church and faith communities? Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I didn't that become a quick. Christian until, yeah, I didn't become a Christian until much later. I um, got saved and baptized in a Pentecostal church, actually, is my mom's church. Um, and then as I moved out, I ended up going to an Assembly of God church um, that was in Cambridge, which was really interesting. Um, and it was the Brian Stevenson was at that church. Um, wow. And, and so, so you know we, Brian Stevenson? Loosely. I mean, okay. we were like, Ping. you know, I was coming in and he was coming out. <laughs> um, but uh, so I, so that church was mixed, but I would say it was predominantly white. Um, and then I went from there to another church um, where I was doing counseling and group work and stuff like that. And uh, that's why I met my husband and um, he ended up leaving the church specifically for issues that came up around race and their, their attempts at doing a church plant in a, in a black community. There it is. Yet oh. they didn't really want to deal with the black people. <laughs> so yeah. I've like, heard this story so you, many times. How do you do that? So he left and then, um, we reconnected after that, and then we ended up dating, and then we got married. Okay, um, okay. so yeah, something yeah. good came out of it. Yeah, something good came out of it. Yes, yes. And then we were we attended for a long time Bethel with the AME Church in Boston mm-hmm. okay. before moving to go to South Africa. Since coming back, it's been really wild. Like we've been in and out of places. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I'm <laughs> what does what does in your view, a a healthy church, a healthy environment for for healing racial trauma. What would be the features of a church or a faith community that's actually doing good in terms of healing and not making the problem worse? Yeah, well, you know what? I, I think that a huge piece of it, we talked about truth telling before, and is it a safe place for you to actually share what it is that you're experiencing without having to sit there and listen to stuff. That's just ridiculous. Like where you're being gaslit, you know, it's like, well, no, that's not what that is. Or we just need kumbaya. We just need to, you know, all we need to do. Yes. We all need to need Jesus. That's a given. And so we need those places where the message is beyond just, you know, we just need to follow the word. Well, you know what? Nobody's doing it. So let's just be real. You know, yes, Jesus is the answer, but if you're not doing it. <laughs> um, and so all of this, this conversations about, um, you know, whether systemic racism exists, doesn't exist, uh, CRT, all of that is just like, you know what? People are in pain. What are you going to do about that? How are you creating a space where those who are in pain? The scripture talks about that, you know, whether it's the one who's wandered off, you know, you go after that, you leave the 99 and you go care for that. You know, one part of the body hurts all, you know, all of the body hurts, like we're interconnected. So you want, we want a church. I want a church. Um, I feel like I'm finally at a church where I feel like that is true. Um, And so that people, and is it perfect? No. But are people striving and working and pursuing Christ and trying to love each other well and creating spaces where people can be honest? Um, yeah, that has to be. That has to be. That's a baseline is where you're not experiencing any kind of spiritual abuse or someone trying to convince you of something that you know is not true um, for yourself or for your community. So I am so glad you mentioned that because it really is, I think, a form of gaslighting to be in these church spaces. Mm-hmm. And they're saying things like systemic racism isn't real or they're just not addressing it. Right. Silence mm-hmm. could be a form of gaslighting um, yeah. in, in, in a certain way. Uh, but I, I think that's so practical. Right. Like it's, it's sort of the do no harm yes. you know, as yeah. a start. Right. There's absolutely positive things that we can do but let's begin by not denying 
the experiences of racism people have. Let's begin by yes. not trying to minimize them, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, aside from getting in a healthy church and worshiping, let's say, look, I can't afford no therapy. These folks want to charge X, Y, Z. Yeah. I can't do all that. Um, are there are there recommendations or suggestions you can give to our listeners that they can go out and practice right now um, that 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 may not be obviously get a therapist if 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 you can find a good one but uh, you know besides that other practices yeah, yeah. Um, you we already talked about rest and finding different yeah. forms of rest sometimes yeah. you can do everything from there's the whole nap ministry lady who talks about you know taking a nap I follow her yes 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 and but she's like she's hardcore she's like we're tearing down that <laughs> capitalist system and she's she's got a real good point um and you know I think about like with Naomi Osaka and um Simone Biles you know just saying yeah it's going to cost them something in terms of money or prestige or whatever, but their mental health and sanity is more important. Um, and so I think that definitely is a, is one piece of it. Um, engaging your body. You talked about that exercising it's breathing, deep breathing. Cause I think we can also just hold our breath with stress and just um, that does a lot of damage. Um, listening. We talked about that. Um, staying connected um, listening prayer too, just I think about as we're leaving these space, spaces in, in many cases. Um, and then the question is, well, who, who am I outside of those spaces? And, um, as a black person, uh, you know, what is the Lord calling me to do? Um, so that I can stay healthy. What are the ways in which I can build resilience? And I feel like it's, I feel like we actually have a lot of that information. Like we actually know when, when things in the past have worked for us in terms of being able to offload stress, where are those, who are those people that are really like a, they're like a salve. They're, they're, they just bring peace and they pray for us and they're supportive and making sure we have those people in our lives or that we are engaging with them. Uh, it, it's really important. And as you said, that can be therapeutic in and of itself, and it doesn't cost anything. Um, it may be that it's pastoral care that the church offers. Um, so doing that right now is is absolutely important. And I would just say, you know what? If, if something really is toxic, you need to stop. <laughs> you need to stop and Thank pull you. back. Yeah. Really, it is okay for you to stop and pull back. Like, like Jesus really is wanting for you to be cared for. Like Jesus loves you that much that he's saying, you know what? I want you to come away with me, whatever that means. Whether it means you need to go to someplace else and sit in the back pew or whatever you need to do. Or you need to come off of that, whatever, the worship team, the blah, blah. Uh, or, or you need to just leave. Because um, ultimately it is, my concern ultimately is our relationship with, with God. Like what is going to help sustain us? Cause that's what's going to carry us through. And so how, what kind of, I, I, so I'm not all for just leaving and just leaving, but if you're leaving and you need to just leave for a while, that's really okay. <laughs> that's really okay. Thank you for but, saying that. Yeah. Yeah. It's really okay. But while you're while you're resting up and healing up and getting the supports that you need, um, my prayer would be that 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 folk are able to then find a community and whether it's in a church building or not, but where they they feel accepted and cared for and loved. Um, that's important. I, that's something we can do that doesn't cost money um, that will help. Um, sustain us and and to help build resilience. And the other part is just what is that the whole activism piece? And I talk about how there's this whole definition of like like grief being a doorway to activism, like the pain and the grief that we've been carrying. Like it's not just about okay, it's all for me to get healed, but okay, then what do I do with that? How is it that the, that God would want to work through me uh, in terms of the transformation of my community around me? And, you know, and whether that is marching or whatever it is, 
Um, but it's more than just me. Like I'm, I'm here to, you know, to comfort people with the comfort that I've received. You read my mind. My last question was going to be, what are your words of encouragement or exhortation? And I think we just received that. And, and I, I do want people to hear from you. They've heard it from us. It is okay to take a break, step down, or even leave uh, because you may be in a toxic environment that's preventing your healing. Um, Sheila Wise Rowe, the book is Healing Racial Trauma. Definitely go get it. What is the best way for folks to keep up with you, stay in contact with you and hear from you? Yeah. So I am, um, I have a website, SheilaWiseRowe.com. Um, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's all Sheila Wise Rowe. I also have a book coming out called, um, yeah, Young, Gifted, and Black. Yes. Uh, a Journey of Lament and Celebration. and. Wow. That is coming out in February. So February 15th. Fe- February 22. Um, yeah. February 15th. Oh, fantastic. 22. Yeah. You got to work yeah. right quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yes. I mean, in, in a similar way, it's, you know, it really is target. The target really is for millennials and younger adults. And, and it's that population. And so a lot of it's around stories and their journeys um, and how, you know, I don't, I, I, I can't hit every single note and every single experience, but I pull up some key ones and some of the struggles that, um, we have. And particularly, um, it's for, for those of us who are tend to go hard and are high performing. And we basically have to push it in, shove it down because so many people are looking up to us. And so it's, it's interesting to me that in this moment with Simone and with Naomi and just like, that's, they're the perfect examples of that. Right. Right. Just like people, the pressure to keep, keep going. Like you just, you don't have time to look at the pain. You know, I allowed. was going to say, you need to stop, stop reading my journal. Cause yeah. I'm like, I need the, I need the, I need the advanced copy ASAP. Yeah. And so. <laughs> to, well, to you're going to be contacted about endorsing. Very good. Please do. Please do. So that, that should light a fire under folks yeah. to get healing racial trauma, yeah. because you're going to want to read that, digest it, and then get the next one. Absolutely. In February, yeah. 2022. Yeah. Sheila Wise Rowe, thank you so thank much you. for coming on past the mic you are welcome here anytime and i just want to say bless you dear sister thank you we need your ministry and praise god for you thank you thank you thank you for having me this has been great